Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation between two boozy hacks. I'm John Swinney. Normally I'm in London, but today I'm somewhere rather beautiful in Italy. And in New York is Mike Weiss. And we've got a special guest today, Doug London, who spent 34 years in the Central Intelligence Agency. Also, to add to the fun, where I am, there's a thunderstorm coming my way, so there could be some loud bangs. Anyway, our normal competition before we um, we talk to Doug London, um, whose country is more screwed, the United States or the United Kingdom? Mike, your go. Well, I'll, I'll, the, the other question we bat back and forth each week is, um, will you win your 500 quid? that uh, Donald Trump will be uh, tossed out of the White House in November. And I'm, I'm finally willing to say with a moderate degree of confidence, a term I think will, which will recur in, in the course of this podcast as we get into our discussion with Doug, that you're probably going to get your 500 quid because I do think uh, Trump's finished. Um, and on that point, the spike in coronavirus cases all across not just America, but really in the the places that Trump cannot afford to lose uh, statewide is uh, as dire uh, for the country as it is, I think, for his electoral prospects. So, you know, I continue to say America is on balance, more fucked, but there's some cause for optimism here, which is that I think uh, Agent Orange is probably going to have to ascend the golden escalator at Trump Tower and maybe never come back out. So well done, John. I think you finally got me to agree with you. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't actually got the five hundred quid yet, mate. Um, also, there's the other possibility that he might lose. He might lose fair and square, and not accept it, and thereby cause a tremendous further damage to American democracy. Um, yeah, but I mean, what does not accept it mean? You know, if the electoral commission or whatever it's called here determines it a free and fair election. I mean, the Secret Service will escort him out of the White House. Um, this is not this is not something he can fuck around with. Like he's, you know, we are not yet a banana republic, even though it often feels that way. So um, he can rant and rave all he wants. But, you know, once the determining body says, right, he lost, then he's got to leave. Um, is that the moment I get my? Um, I need to check with the uh, with my bookies uh, when I get the dosh. What happens when Trump um, sort of holds up in the um, in the White House? I, mean, I suppose I think as a trespasser. Yeah, he's the other thing is he has a, a history of cowardice, physical cowardice running through his life. So I don't think that he is going to. Um, no. I don't think he's going to muck about. Anyway, let's let's talk to. I've got lots of things to uh, to chat about, but um, let's introduce our guest, Doug London, thirty four years in the agency. Doug, do you miss it? Do you miss the CIA? Uh, that's a question I get a lot. I I miss um, my colleagues, I think, and uh, the sense of mission one has, but. Uh, I think after almost four decades, I was ready to move on to something somewhat less physically taxing. Could I be provocative and say, do you miss the management? Uh, that's also a fair question. I think I'm on a pretty solid record for saying that I don't miss the management. And uh, it's very much <laughs> that, that aspect of the agency. I certainly hope sees some reform. Uh, ideally under a new administration after January. 
So um, I've had my, well, I used to work for the BBC and I left. And um, what was interesting, we all saw that the, uh, the Intelligence Committee in the House of Commons published the Russia report. And it was really a big slap for, um, it, it seems, MI5 and MI6, also SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, more properly, because they, um, the, the conclusion is there has been no Russian interference in the, in the big two British referenda of the last couple of uh, last few years, the Scottish vote and the Brexit vote. But it turns out the intelligent our intelligence services haven't looked properly at, at the to see whether there's real evidence. And it suddenly struck me that is with a ghastly possibility that working for MI5 or MI6 might be might be like working for the BBC in that you've got a great organisation with a wonderful, um, sometimes difficult um, uh, track record, but nevertheless a good organisation there to defend um, uh, a great democracy or, or in the BBC's case, to broadcast um, the politics of a, of a great democracy to the world and also report what's going on in the world. And yet suddenly the people at the top or the people at the top don't get it and have and are careerist and kind of narrow minded. I don't want you to tell any um, um, secrets out of um, naughty secrets. But what was it like living inside the CIA's bureaucracy? Can you can you share that with us? Yeah, I think, John, that's a that's a fair comparison. And I think there certainly exists sort of two realities uh, at the same time, isn't there? Because you have the, the professionals, the, the body of the workforce, that uh, they just keep their heads down, they're doing their job, they're there for what's brought them in the first place, which is a sense of mission, whether it's as a journalist of the BBC, I'm sure, which is to, to get out the news and expose the bad and, and try to lend, make a difference. It's very much the same for the professionals and the intelligence community and Obviously, my experience, particularly with the CIA, where these are folks that they're, they're not partisan. They might belong to one party or another, but their, their pledge is to the Constitution. And that's, that's really genuine. It's not just cliche. And then there's the other reality of those that are at the, the executive level. And remember, the CIA is, is a bit different than most of the other United States government agencies that really, with the exception of the very top, you know, the director, the deputy uh, it's largely a service of careerists. And today, even the, the director of Central Intelligence Agency is, is a careerist. But once they seem to get to that next echelon, even though they're, they're a careerist, they're not a political appointee in the agency, except for the top few, there tends to be, sadly, a, a, a transition in perspective on what's going to advance the organization, what's going to support the workforce, and what's in their own uh, interest of political survival. I think that's endemic regardless of who's at the top, but I just felt my experience of the last few years was it became far worse uh, over the last few years, and particularly under the Trump administration. Whose mobile phone was that? That was mine. Sorry. It's linked to my computer. So when someone calls me, unfortunately, the computer makes a noise as well. And I'm not savvy enough to sort that out. Um, Doug, I want to ask you my own question, which is, you know, we we started uh, chatting on the back of your um, your rather good New York Times op-ed. 
And, you know, this what is... Was a, the gist of it? I haven't read that. What's the gist of it? Well, it's it was about the... Um, Doug makes a very good case that that, that, that this shouldn't be called um, uh, GRU bounties on American soldiers offered to the Taliban. It's a bit more complicated than that, or at least it will have been as delivered in a intelligence memo. But you know, I wanted to talk to you, Doug, about this story because, as you know, I mean, the, the original reporting done by Charlie Savage in the New York Times came out. It was then stood up by other outlets. Uh, the Associated Press, I think, had a, had a piece saying that this has actually been going on for years, even though Charlie dated it from, I think, January of this year. And then you wrote a, a very um, good and, and interesting piece sort of explaining that, I mean, A, it's, it's widely known and accepted in the U.S. intelligence community and at the Pentagon that uh, the Russians have been backing the Taliban with light arms and uh, money and probably other uh, material, night vision goggles and so on and so forth for several years. Um, and that Donald Trump was briefed on this, uh, as you know. Can you get a little bit into, I mean, I, obviously you, you just left the agency. I'm not asking you, well, sure, I, I suppose I, I would ask you to divulge things you probably shouldn't, but you're, you're, you're not going to. I know that. But can you get a little bit into your argument in that op-ed? And also, I mean, if we can talk about how the intelligence has been politicized and turned into, as every fucking thing is these days, a story about Donald Trump when it really isn't. It's it's a story about, you know, a hostile foreign state and one of the most daring and lethal uh, subunits of its military intelligence service, not just trying to undermine American and British interests in Afghanistan, but also possibly trying to get American and British soldiers killed. Can you, can you discuss what's in your, your piece and sort of what the broader, um, takeaway is about Russia's involvement in Afghanistan? Sure, uh, Mike. Um, when the story was coming out, even before it came out, and certainly after, I was uh, contacted by uh, a, a lot of journalists because that was my last job in the agency. That's what I retired from, was managing operations in that region, um, you know, specifically Afghanistan and such. Mm. So I, I had taken issue with the way the reporting was being characterized. I, I it was happy to say that, yeah, you're, you're on the right track here and the, there's a story and it's an issue and it's essentially about Russian involvement uh, in a way that threatens our troops to which the president uh, has been dismissive, um, aware, but dismissive. But my concern was the way it was depicted uh, because in the intelligence community, there's a real precision in language. You, you use words, particularly in products that inform decision makers, and especially the president, who whoever's sitting in that chair only has so much time and is not an expert on all things, to make sure there's no room for misinterpretation or understanding. It's, it's very clinical. The intelligence community would not use a word like bounty because you now bounty conjectures different images for different people. To me, I, I think of like watching old Westerns as a kid and seeing a picture of, uh, you know, old text as a poster for Robin Banks and a bounty for his head. You know, the, the bottom line is, in a sense, the same, but the, the nuance is important. So what uh, has been even talked about in the press long before this article and General Nicholson, who commanded U.S. and uh, international forces in Afghanistan for two years from 2017 to 18, said it. Uh, James Mattis said it while he was Secretary of Defense in 2017. Um, and even the current commander of CENTCOM, General McKenzie 
has referred to it. There's uh, no doubt about Russian aid to the Taliban. It's been ongoing. It uh, would appear to have increased over time. And it's one that we've known to include finance, uh, ammunition, and, um, and you know, logistical support, materials and such for the Taliban's use. And the way such things go when an intelligence service is working with a proxy, an insurgent group, what have you, to undertake operations, there's a couple of considerations. One is that, you know, their bureaucracy, just like any others, they have to prove uh, performance, they have to sign receipts, they have to show money's been spent, and money's been spent for what it was intended. So Russian aid for the Taliban clearly was to support operations, and the Taliban would have to demonstrate use of that aid, whatever it was, be it the materials themselves or the money, to go ahead and show, yeah, we did use it for the purpose intended, and look, we did it, so now you can give us more, keep giving us, or give us even additional funds. Yeah. So the Russians would use that as a way to incentivize, obviously, the Taliban to act against U.S. and coalition troops, which are a much harder target than shooting other Afghans, because if you take on Americans, you're taking on combat air support, HIMAR ballistic missiles, rapid reaction, all sorts of nastiness that if you're a part-time fighter, as most of the Taliban fighters are, uh, you'd rather not do that. So um, the intelligence that had gone to the president along this, these lines, which had been ongoing, particularly uh, in even greater emphasis up to uh, the February signing of the agreement with the Taliban, was clearly reflecting on what are the sources of aid the Taliban receives, who has influence, and by characterizing it, as the press did, as a bounty, it basically allowed the president, as he has tended to do, to say, I didn't say anything about a bounty, uh, and nobody briefed me, where the bounty was probably referred to as financial incentives the Russians provided the Taliban to attack U.S. targets. Mm-hmm. And the briefing was clearly, as depicted in the press, those contained in the president's daily brief, which has the president's name on it for a reason. It's, it's designed for specifically the president, though it's received by the members of his cabinet. So my op-ed was really a reaction to another journalist, and one of whom finally said, well, why don't you just write an op-ed? And I said, okay. And uh, I was lucky enough that the Times picked it up. Yeah. So let me, on, on that point, so two things. One, you know, Russia will argue that if it is supporting the Taliban, it's doing so because the Taliban is fighting ISIS and Russia sees ISIS as a far greater national security threat, particularly as um, the ranks of ISIS in recent years have uh, grown to include a lot of fighters from uh, the North Caucasus and then the Central Asian republics, the stands. Um, and so if you make a case, well, sure, Russia's f- backing the Taliban. How do we know they're backing them to kill coalition troops and not to kill ISIS? That's point one. Point two, and this is my read of this as a journalist was the specificity of the reporting and, and the intelligence here tends to belie the idea, and this has again been bandied about by naysayers or skeptics, that this all came from um, the interrogations of Taliban fighters, right? So people who, why take the word of insurgents at face value? However, Taliban fighters who were interrogated would not know, A, which Russian service was paying them, because that's not how it works. You don't show up with a badge that says, hi, I'm from the SVR, and now you work for me unless you get so far into the recruitment process. But even if they knew it was the GRU, right, how would they know it was Unit 29155? And to those of us 
who listen to this podcast, all three people who don't know, this is the unit that was responsible, uh, according to uh, a sort of a panoply of Western intelligence uh, agencies, for the Skripal assassination attempt in Salisbury, the assassination attempt of a Bulgarian arms dealer called Emilian Gebrev in Bulgaria in 2015. Um, they were responsible for a, an abortive coup in Montenegro. Basically, this is a unit that does two things, sabotage and assassinations. So if they're backing the Taliban, A, how did the CIA know it was this particular unit unless there's also intelligence coming from the Russian side? And B, you know, why would this particular unit be doing anything in Afghanistan unless it was a particularly nefarious, explicitly anti-Western uh, operation, which is what basically they were created to do. So I know that's quite uh, quite a lot, but if you can address those points, I'm very keen to hear what you have to say about that. Well, fortuitously, not having really drank that much to be sufficiently inebriated to forget the questions, I'm still so far so good. So I'm in there, and yeah. really you as well, because just to have thought of all those salient points was 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 rather was rather good. Well, keep on. I'm writing a book on on the on the GRU, so I I do nothing all day every day, but think about especially this unit, which is why I'm so intrigued by this story. Well, by the way, I know what you're thinking. I'm drinking a gin and tonic, Mike. Yeah, but I've I've changed my gin. I found a lovely um, Japanese brand called Roku, which is Suntory, the company that does the whiskey. Um, it's much cheaper. It tastes a lot better and uh, doesn't leave me hungover, which is why I'm able to make all these salient points. This, uh, this is John, way you need to confess I'm not drinking anything alcoholic at this time because it's a little early in the day. But uh, okay. but my colleagues would would tell you half the things I think of appears uh, if I'm inebriated anyway. So uh, <laughs> we're probably all fine. I'm going to have to ask you this question. I want to hear your answers to Mike's questions. But are you a Mormon? Oh, uh, I'm not. <laughs> um, well, um, there, there are a, a, a fair number of them in the international affairs business based on a lot of their experience in travel and, and interactions with folks. Yes, I did a, um, sorry to, inter- I'm, I'm really keen on the, uh, hearing your answers, but uh, I did a film about Mitt Romney's chances and that took me to Utah. And I um, interviewed a group of ex-Mormons who were angry with the kind of cultish aspects of of the um, of the Mormon Church, and um, we put them in a in a sort of semicircle, and I said, "What do you do?" And you know, I'm a, a builder, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a butcher, I'm a baker, I'm a candlestick maker, and then I asked this, "And what do you do?" And he said, "Could you switch the cameras off, please?" And I thought, "Okay," and we switched the cameras off, and he says, "I was in the CIA," <laughs> and so I've always been fascinated by. By that thing, but that's for later. Answer Mike's a, a extremely detailed free four point five point question. <laughs> um, you know the the very first point I think is one of the reasons why there's been a, a some degree of incredulity upon journalists that I've I've interacted with, at least some of them, uh, in that well, you know, doesn't Russia have more to gain in cooperation with the United States against common foes, particularly the Islamic State? And, Mike's point is spot on, particularly in uh, the Islamic State. You'll find uh, any number of uh, Chechens and, and folks from the stands and such who were in olden days part of Al-Qaeda partner organizations like the um, uh, um, IMU, the uh, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, 
uh, Uyghurs, Eastern Turkmenistan group, who found a home in, in ISIS. The fundamental flaw of that is the reality that that's not how the Russians conduct foreign policy or, or uh, service intelligence requirements. At the end of the day, for Russia, that which hurts the United States best helps Russia. And I think we have found, at least I know we have found in CIA, that while there are certain areas that might be compatible and, and logically mutual of interest, the Russian priority is to bleed the United States in a way that they can distract us from being a problem for them, whether that is keeping us from, as they would think, meddling in their internal affairs where there is no democracy, there is no open press, there is no freedom, really, or whether it is uh, challenging them for areas of influence externally. Um, Putin, of course, has really tried to get Russia back on the map as a world power and has taken advantage very much of the U.S. retreat from its leadership position and sometimes actual retreat from uh, its place in the world, such as in, uh, in Syria and in Libya, and, and we see even more throughout the day, even in, in likes of, of Europe. So to answer your first question, um, there was no evidence that I recall that uh, Russian aims were to simply enable the, the Taliban against a common foe being the Islamic State of the Khorasan province, ISKP. They've done that openly where they can, where there have been some multilateral efforts. The Russians are, are openly out there diplomatically with the Taliban and working with, uh, in some form with various other international associations, be it ISAF to some degree. But no, their motivation was not um, ISKP, uh, nor was that their target. And it's really explained best by a fundamental appreciation of how the Russians prioritize their interests and, and their alignment of resources. Mm-hmm. Were there um, the reality of the Russians doing something in that degree? They would have actually provided substantive intelligence because my op-ed also noted, and it likewise appeared from an interview that I and um, my colleague Mark gave to Just Security on direction from the White House to cooperate with the Russians on CT issues and provide them intelligence, despite us demonstrating to the White House and our leadership in the form of the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Russians weren't playing nice. They were uh, not really providing intelligence, and the information they provided was largely to try to help us get them pursue dissenters, political dissidents, and such like that, or was disinformation. So, so that hopefully addresses question number one. Question number two, if if I remember it, is about sorting of the intelligence and the particular GRU unit right. that um, said to have been doing this. And and Mike, your very informed uh, observation is spot on. That you know, first of all, the press itself spoke of CIA having at least a level of medium confidence in the intelligence, uh, which would suggest multiple streams of sources. Uh, vetting yeah. is really key to the agency. You know, our our system is what allows us to speak with credibility and, and authority when we speak to the degree of confidence we have in any particular source. And then in turn, the finished products, which are based on uh, information from multiple sources, be they multiple human sources or mm-hmm. multiple forms of intelligence, such as signals or cyber or what have you. Uh, in this case, the specificity of not only the GRU, but a particular GRU unit would not come from a low-level fighter. I, ideally, as you quite pointed out, you know the Russians would try to preserve their tradecraft and, 
and not likely even be operating on the ground in Afghanistan, but rather providing what support, money, aid, materials along the border where they have with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan yeah. and along the way. So, yeah, when I when I read that, uh, not only my guilty knowledge, but you know, just based on the way it was framed by the press, there's there's no doubt this is not just coming from low-level fighters who've been detained or defectors or low-level, but there's something else that gave the CIA confidence in their their assessment. And can you go go into it? Because, I mean, you know, one of the things that happened, and, and this goes to the point of the politicization of this, when I think it was the DNI put out that memo saying, well, the NSA had nothing on this and they, they couldn't comment or, or um, substantiate CIA's intelligence. And then, you know, a lot of people read medium confidence as, oh, okay, so it's, it's, it's not even, it doesn't even rise to the level of George Tennant's slam dunk, right? Can you go in a little bit into these classification systems of confidence? Because I know that after 9-11 in particular, um, or rather after the Iraq war, um, you know, these designations became very pregnant, right? In, in the sense that, you know, um, low confidence is, is almost like, well, uh, you know, maybe, but we have no evidence. But medium confidence seems to be quite common, particularly in human intelligence, where you're dealing in, as you put it, multiple streams of information and sourcing. Um, you're not necessarily dealing in intercepts, black and white documentary evidence, which, which can lend itself to, to higher confidence or essentially 100% sure this is what's going on. Can you go a little bit into that, how the CIA uses these designations and what medium confidence colloquially, internally means? Um, so I became a liberal arts major and in turn a spy because math has never been one of my strong suits. But nonetheless, your listeners can actually go to any of the products from the Office of Director of National Intelligence website. Uh, for example, the declassified report on Russian meddling 2016 has an appendix at the end, which actually will break down for the reader what is required for the different levels of confidence, low, medium, high, near certainty. It's actually mathematical in nature. And, and that's available to the reader. So it's on a scale that's based on to what percentage do we have confidence that the different puzzle pieces of the big jigsaw that is whatever issue we're addressing has been supported and documented. So medium confidence is actually really, uh, fairly robust. Speaking to the NSA position, and I think um, I know the director of national intelligence, Mr. Radcliffe, did a disservice to NSA that they really can't defend themselves. But the way it was depicted in the press, once again, to which I have to rely, is that it was less NSA saying they dissented, that they had a different view, and more that there was an insufficient degree of signals intelligence, which allowed them to as robustly uh, endorse the same view to the same level. So NSA was essentially saying, you know, what you've got CIA, yeah, I see it. Okay, I get the logic. NSA does not have its own independent signal streams of intelligence to support the same view. That's yeah. different than a dissent. A dissent is actually when you say, uh-uh, we have intelligence that says something different. And right. it's okay. that they didn't share the level of confidence because they didn't have the same robust reporting. So the idea, which has been bandied about, that this story has been, quote, debunked, or that you know cold water has been poured on it by the Pentagon and the, the IC, you would say is not true. I would say just the opposite. Everything I've seen officially out of the White House acknowledges and confirms it. 
The White House acknowledged there were presidential daily briefs. It acknowledges there was reporting on this. It acknowledges the CIA's level of confidence. And I think, if I recall, even the Wall Street Journal, which initially came out with cold water specific to the NSA, kind of walked that back later on. They did a self-edit of their own reporting and and sort of took out that it was a dissent uh, and made it just, as you pointed out, that we can't confirm what CIA has reported, not that um, we've been able to disconfirm it. Yeah, so exactly. I see more confirmation than I do repudiation of, of the reporting. And the reason I've been a little bit coy in my questioning, I mean, I, I sort of knew your answers in advance. I might as well tell the readers because we've talked about this. Is I've, done, I've tried to, to, to stand this up myself, and I've queried now three different Western services closely aligned with the United States, um, civilian human intelligence-focused services, all of which come back and say this is true. And none of which in the past has ever taken anything that the CIA, with all due respect, has ever taken anything that the CIA has said as copper bottom proof or, or sort of rubber stamped it and said, well, if they're saying it, it must be true. They, they, in other words, they've got their own streams of information. Um, and that's rare as a journalist. I mean, I, I chase things up the flagpole with different services all the time. And it's usually I get more of a kind of patchwork or a, a contradictory mosaic. Here I'm getting, no, we all think this is right. Um, and it's extraordinary to me because that really hasn't come out in the reporting. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out as somebody who doesn't have access to classified intelligence, but my gut is telling me that there is more to this than we know. Um, and now I think, frankly, you know, a lot of people have been spooked because A, who's president of the United States, B, how this has been turned again into a party political domestic issue when it's not, and C, um, you know, nobody wants to put their neck on the line and be accused of running some quote unquote deep state operation to un- unhorse, uh, you know, the incumbent um, by leaking more stuff to the press. So I think in a way, the New York Times reporting, even though it was illuminating in one sense, was also did us a disservice because it means now this story is kind of being sewn up um, and, and mouths are being shut, at least to the extent that things that would come in to fill in the picture, more details, more information are probably not forthcoming. Although I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure every other journalist in the national security field is chasing this as much as I am. But again, it, it is very strange and it is very rare when you get almost a yes or no answer to a question intelligence wise. And I'm just getting, yes, we have this, we've confirmed it. We agree with CIA on this three different services. Um, so, you know, putting that out there to you, because, again, I was I was intrigued by your op-ed and I, I've learned to kind of read between the lines on things doing this for a long time. And, you know, it's frustrating because we, we all want to get at the proof. We all want to have that sort of gotcha moment where this is how can anyone dispute this? We're not going to get there on this, though, just given the nature of the information. Well, I think it's a lot to do just with the way the news cycle has become. And, and I defer yeah. to you and John. But uh, even as a, as a humble civil servant, I've never seen the news cycle turn as quickly as it does today. You know, there seems a new outrage every day that takes us off into another direction. And yeah. plus, you know, they, they have an obligation to get, you know, stuff out there, but they also want to be on top of the latest and greatest, and they don't want to be scooped. So this is a story that's worth, you know, daily upticks and, you know, making current and such like that, but it's been superseded by the latest, you know, series of offenses and, and yeah, it seems to be the way things go today. 
Yeah, short attention span theater is certainly not doing my uh, so-called profession any favors. John, do you agree? You've been silent for a while. Sorry, I've, I've hogged the conversation, but as I say, no. I'm a dog with a bone on this one. No, it, it's um, it's fascinating. So, so um, Doug, do you think the story is true that the GRU paid the Taliban money to, so, and in return they killed? American and British soldiers. The GRU would have the the primary responsibility for dealing with the Taliban on the ground, if you would, or at least at the border area. And uh, there's already evidence by the Secretary of Defense, former James Mattis, and General Nicholas himself that, yes, there was intelligence that indicated the Russians were providing money, arms, material to the Taliban. And the purpose obviously was disrupting operations, which means United States and coalition forces. Why hasn't Donald Trump, President Trump, done something about this? That is the million dollar question. And one can look at it variously through the most salacious lens or through the most even practical and you still get the same answer. It is not in the president's interest to do so. From a he had a call with Putin yesterday, I believe. He's had and multiple calls with Putin over the past. Yeah, one just yesterday, according to Peter Baker at the, the New York Times, and uh, the so-called bounty story did not come up, according to the American readout of that call. Well, yes, and who knows? Uh, the entire protocol for calls between head of states has been changed as has been widely reported, and particularly that related to his calls with uh, Vladimir Putin. You know, the president and Putin have a rather effective codependent relationship. If you even cast aside any salacious suggestion that, oh, Putin's got dirt on the president and or the president's reaching out to him for, you know, to spiritual assistance, the reality is what they do complement one another in a very deliberate manner. So the Russians are putting out disinformation and meddling in elections and doing things that are to the president's political advantage that he then echoes, replicates, and to which he provides top cover. So it would not be in the president's interest to undermine the dynamics of that relationship. So whether it's a you know very salacious conspiratorial, oh, they've got some secret relationship, or whether they're simply doing it because it serves both their ends, the impact for U.S. national security is the same. It hurts U.S. national security that the president is impeding efforts to counter the threat from Russia and is dismissing the threat that's already ongoing because Russian practice, which dates back well even before there was a Soviet Union, is testing limits, probing and such. They understand yeah. red lines. When there are no red lines drawn and enforced, the Russians will continue and persist. Do you think... So- this that this operation, um, assuming that it does exist, because uh, you know people have been speculating. Apart from sort of the broad strokes which you've outlined, and I don't need any convincing that it would be in the Russian interest to at all times. I mean, the GRU was founded, as one um, intelligence officer and scholar of this stuff told me, uh, to prepare for war with the West. I don't need convincing that they want to undermine Western and particularly American interests at every turn, and if that includes. Um, using proxy warfare to kill American soldiers on, you know, foreign soil wouldn't surprise me in the least. However, um, people are trying to get into sort of the specifics as to if this, if this operation was undertaken in retaliation. So for instance, when uh, U.S. forces essentially 
something like 200 agents of uh, the Wagner group in Syria, which is a, a Russian mercenary really tied to the GRU kind of, um, I guess the technical term, term is a private military company, uh, which the Russians have dispatched to do some of the, the, the dirty and, and cruder work in propping up the al-Assad regime in Syria. These guys waged a very stupid and daring raid on American and SDF forces in Deir Zor, I think it was two years ago. And Mattis, defense secretary at the time, basically un- unleashed hell. And these guys got just completely wiped out. Uh, so people have speculated, well, this, this is the GRU getting their retaliation in against American forces. Um, do you see it as a kind of tit for tat or do you see it as more in the broader kind of gestalt of just this is what these guys do? And, and if they have an opportunity and especially if they see that we are not pushing back or we're not defending ourselves or we're not retaliating for some provocation, they're just going to keep going further and further. Um, your colleague, John Seifer, likes to quote the 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 Lenin uh, axiom, you know, when you have a blade and when you push, if you encounter mush, you keep going. If you encounter something hard, you pull back, right? Uh, John always has a witty turn of phrase. God love him. Um, <laughs> your, your, your points are well taken. Um, the, the incident to which you refer wasn't Arizor. It was uh, against U.S. forces uh, along with um, SDF, I believe, and they were protecting an oil fill. And yeah. uh, the, the troops were, were Wagner paramilitary, you know, personaries supporting uh, Syrian government forces. And they didn't heed, and they were testing right there and then as well, expecting, I think, we would remove ourselves, and we didn't. And it was very costly for them. And I don't think anybody has the official numbers because – the Russians didn't really want to advertise, but it was it was pretty bad for for the Russians. But that having been said, um, that's really not how the Russians operate. They the GRU is not a rogue service. It's very much a stovepiped bureaucracy, and how things are run, things are micromanaged from leadership. So what you see transpiring is not some rogue act, nor is it like an emotional quest for justice. It's it's a rather well-considered strategic plan. The Russians, sadly, because uh, they're very um, synthesized right now by the virtual stovetop management, which defeats innovation and agility, which is where we have advantages, uh, things don't happen without them knowing it and blessing it. Wagner, as you said, also, that's run by Prohojin, who's under U.S. indictment for the 2016 elections. Russia is not a free market economy. So Wagner is not like, you know, Blackwater used to be or whatever like that. They operate in sync and coordination with the Russian government. So, no, I I see it really as a reflection of ongoing and continuing Russian policy. I I think what we have noticed is that an uptick in a level of aggression and a level of testing to, to use John's putting the knife and feeling nothing but mushiness because the lack of resistance from this president to uh, continue indulging Russian provocations, because it, again, it works for him and Putin in their, their rather codependent relationship. Do you think, Doug, that um, Donald Trump is a Russian asset? You know, I really am not uh, well enough informed to say. Uh, you know, assets, agents operate clandestinely. They would not boldly do things to advertise their their illegal relationship with a foreign power. 
So spies don't really operate in plain sight. Oh, we'll hide in plain sight. That's not really how it works, but I'm not qualified to say. He doesn't, you know, a a spy generally tries to be a very gray person who no one notices and certainly does not advertise a relationship. I don't think Donald Trump has to be a spy to serve Russian interests in this case. Sorry to interrupt. How about him being an unwitting asset, i.e. that he's being played by the Russians? He's not a spy for the Russians. He is somebody who, um, by by a, a series of psychological flaws, is being played by Vladimir Putin, which makes him effectively a Russian asset, but an unwitting one. What about that possibility? I I think Donald Trump has been too consistent and predictable in his behavior to say these are errant flaws and decisions, and he just acts on a sort of reflex. Uh, He didn't get where he is uh, by doing that way. So I think he sort of rationalizes in his mind, I'm sure he does, that uh, of course he's not working for the Russians, but he's certainly taking advantage of what they can do for him. Because in his mind, I would presume to believe that he believes there is no better answer for the United States than him, regardless of what he has to do to keep it that way. Let me ask you um, a different question, but related to John's. Uh, and, and this is something I come up against a lot um, in, in sort of the doing the history of the Cold War. Uh, so, for instance, cases in which the FBI knew that somebody was, say, a Soviet agent or a spy or working for directly for one of the uh, the Soviet services, but couldn't really bring that person to book because to do so would disclose the existence and then the details of classified intelligence. So I'm thinking, for instance, of the Venona project, where uh, what was then the, the, the precursor to the NSA and then eventually the NSA was just hoovering up all kinds of communication from New York and Washington, D.C., and Moscow, and, and really instances where people were, were named by, not just by their code name, but by their name. And so the FBI couldn't necessarily indict people as under the Espionage Act because to do so in court, they would have to disclose the existence of this program. So instead, they would look for other ways to go after them. Perjury was a common one. If they were foreigners, they'd look to have them deported. If they were working for some government bureaucracy or institution, they'd simply try to have them fired from their job for other kinds of grounds. Um, gray mailing, I believe, is the term that's used, uh, the term of art that, that, that sort of the FBI and DOJ use for this. So this is all by way of, of asking you, when you read something like the Mueller report uh, and you look at the, the very narrow parameters, the specificity of what that special counsel investigation was, was looking at, from a, a counterintelligence point of view, do you see that as the sort of definitive, the final word? on A, any entanglements that the Trump campaign might have had with not just Russian spies, but Russian financial institutions or Russian government interests, and B, uh, any entanglements that that Trump as an individual or as a real estate mogul or as an American celebrity who traveled the world uh, might have had with Moscow going back even to before the end of the Cold War. I mean, do you did you read that document and say, aha, uh, that just proves there's no there there. And if, if Bob Mueller didn't didn't hit pay dirt, then no one can. From a counterintelligence point of view. From a counterintelligence point of view, um, if I had um, practiced any of those behaviors or any of my colleagues or pretty much anyone who worked for the U.S. government, we would 
at minimum have been fired and, and our security clearance taken away and most likely uh, prosecuted. That president uh, met what I would think meets the um, threshold for conspiracy, right? There's no such thing as proven in the law. Right. Um, I just believe there was a different consideration in terms of what was going to be prosecuted. But it does get back to your original point. The Department of Justice pursues cases that they believe they can win, not that right. they believe the person is wrong. So it was clear from the language of the document and then certainly from A.G. Barr's um, intervention therein that the Department of Justice did not see a conviction possible. So thus, no no indictments, at least not at this time. But did Donald Trump break laws that had I done the same or any colleague done the same would have been at least cause for termination, if not indictment? Well, yeah, I think that's clear in the specificity of the Mueller report, particularly if you really do read it, which is why seeing the way it was uh, conveyed by A.G. Barr, and I, of course, no attorney, I just thought was uh, – disingenuous is a minimum way to kind of look at the abuse of, of the power in that case. I mean, because one of the, the tantalizing aspects of, of delving into the history of, you know, U.S.-Soviet stroke Russian relations and, and sort of, you know, Cold War intelligence intrigue is even 90 years on, right? I mean, I go back to the 30s. Um, uh, I go back to uh, Walter Kravitsky, Whittaker Chambers, Alger Hiss. 90 years on, we're still learning things. Things are still eking out into the public domain that we simply could not get access to because they were classified, whether on the American side or uh, as is still the case, unfortunately, on the Russian side. Um, and I, I, I sort of look at, as you pointed out earlier, the, the sort of fast and furious nature of our news cycle. People don't really want to pursue things when there has been a kind of summary judgment. The conventional wisdom says this is this is it. It's a damp squib. Let's move on. But in fact, to understand intelligence you have it, it often takes decades to get to the real meat of a story, right? Um, and particularly when you're dealing with things that simply the government cannot disclose even the existence of things, much less tell you how they know what they know or how they're how they know to pursue a certain lead and and possibly go after somebody on a lesser charge because they simply cannot, you know, bring to court the evidence that they that they're looking at. I mean, and, and so as a journalist, it's always been difficult for me to kind of convey this to the public that, look, um, you know, the the uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as it were. Um, and there are there are other lines of inquiry that need to be pursued. And, and again, the, the the instant gratification everyone's looking for, the expectations that were set up, unfortunately, uh, by media organizations that, oh, you know, Bob Mueller is going to frog march the president of the United States out in handcuffs of the Oval Office. Um, you know, the, the anticlimax, the sense of dejection and sort of disillusionment that's set in is really um, misplaced because, again, the history of this is not going to be written for, for many years on. Yeah, I, I, your point is well taken and it's very true. I, I think even more so the likelihood of, of evidence or information coming out, particularly post 9-11, is, is a consideration because we have increasingly become more focused on documentation and a paper trail. Those equities remain the same, that we may not be able to do something for some reason, but we want to make sure there's a paper trail to say, here's why we stopped so nobody gets in trouble. There's a lot of attention to making sure um, violations of, of law are reported. I mean, we as an agency will sometimes engage with foreigners who what they do overseas for us breaks laws that we have to at least 
go back to justice and documents so that someday in the future we and the agent both don't get in trouble. But I think that that paper trail is there. I, one of the early thing I, I wrote about the bounty before even more of this came out was that there's a paper trail and there's equities that might mitigate against what can be released and when, but the evidence is, is certainly out there. Mm. What did you think, Doug, to the um, the British House of Commons Intelligence Committee report, the Russia report? Have you had a chance to have a look at it? What did you, and if so, what did you think? I only saw it in broad strokes, to be to be honest. I was happy that it came forward. I thought it was a little bit late in a day, um, which just, I thought it was a little bit late in the day for when it came out. Uh, not late literally in the day, but it should have come out a bit earlier. And I was kind of curious what took them this long to sort of put it out. And I'm sure there's political considerations, but I, I don't think there's any um, lack of, of certainty that the Russians conduct this electoral interference, not just you know in the United States or in Britain, but it is a, a part of their overall strategy. They'll use it everywhere. So it really shouldn't be much of a surprise. And what's more surprising is the level of resistance in governments that oh, it didn't happen here, or it can't happen here, or we would never let them get away with that, when that's just a staple of, of Russian strategy, which goes back to the 30s and the Czechist and, and what have you. So let's be clear about this. Do you think the Russian secret states interfered with the Brexit vote? I honestly don't have enough insight to say. I, I have not seen enough of the information to make an informed comment. I, I wouldn't but, necessarily be surprised, but I, mean, but I don't know but, enough but, but what you've just said is that Russia has, in particular, unchecked, um, has, it does, part of its game, part of what it does, the Russian secret state, is it does like to interfere. It does like to, to propagate. That's your general observation. It would be in Russia's interest to create chaos and disunity between the EU and Great Britain. Therefore, it would be in Russian interest to have interfered in Brexit to get exactly what has occurred. I honestly, like, I'm just not able to comment in an informed way because I have not looked close enough at reflections of Russian activity, but that's what they would be doing. That would be part of their operational directive. I just, I haven't seen enough evidence to comment in in an informed manner. Doug, if you were in charge of crafting Russia policy for this or, I suppose, the next administration, what would be certain things that you would put in place? Um, whether, I mean, maybe you don't want to get into sort of what you would sort of authorize at the covert level, but let's talk about what you would authorize at the overt level. What should the United States be doing? Should we be pursuing a policy of deterrence and containment? Should we even pay lip service to the idea of cooperation on counterterrorism, cybersecurity, uh, deep proliferation efforts, et cetera? What would be your kind of... Your, your, your Russia policy? It would be based on communications and stabilizing gestures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's always in our interest to have a constructive dialogue with a country that could blow us off the face of the earth. Yep. So that which you can accomplish constructively is for the best. But, you know, any policy is a campaign. It's not based on any single thread. It's, it's multifaceted. It's what you do with hard power, soft power, influence, and such like that. Um, I think folks give the Russians too much credit as being, you know, superhuman and, oh, they're chess players. Well, so are we. Uh, and we play chess extremely well with a lot more innovation and creativity at times. 
I think the the starting place for the United States is to allow the national security organs to do their job and not impede them because of concern at what the president personally believes, likes, prefers, might be insulted by. We know how to deal with the Russians. We've dealt with them extremely well. We've dealt with them successfully in deterring aggression, rolling it back, but then finding places of common interest such as proliferation, where be it most recently, you know, with Iran under the JCPOA, which is, I guess, no longer. And prior to that, uh, you know, start and salt and all those agreements. So it's it's multifaceted, but it starts with a president that empowers and enables the professionals to do their job and not to create uh, walls and, and impediments. Do you um, so just going back to the the Russia reports as uh, published by the uh, the House of Commons Intelligence Committee? One of the things they said was that. that um, there was extreme caution by Britain's intelligence community in, in, in about looking at this stuff, in particular Russian interference in the Scottish vote and the Brexit vote. And the intelligence committee thought this was illogical for them to hang back. Your impression, um, looking um, at the... Uh, MI6, MI5, uh, from your position as a CIA man, is it under the thumb of the bureaucrats at the top? I mean, would there be sort of good officers who would want to look at this stuff and they were prevented because of office, office politics? I, I have nothing but really positive experience with the British services. I've dealt with both your domestic British security service, the MI5, and the secret intelligence service, MI6. And and you have every reason to be proud of them. They're, they're professional, they're forthright, they're mission-focused, and they're very good at their jobs. I can't speak to the political leadership, uh, which oversees them. Um, generally, my experiences were positive in that respect because they weren't really that political. They were mostly counter-terrorist issues or, well, in that case, likewise, Russia, Iran, such like that, and China where there wasn't as much of a cloud perhaps as there is today. I just think that, you know, there's been a, a, a political dynamic of, of populism here in the States and Britain and, and throughout so much of the world, which has really changed the, the playing field. You all were discussing, you and Mike, earlier on about, you know, Trump and, oh, of course, once he's beaten, he'll have to leave the office. I, I really don't know. Uh, I don't know where bottom is anymore, and I don't know what rules are certain because a lot of the conditions that we operated under for so long uh, don't seem to apply. And, and in fact, worse, we're less shocked every day when they don't apply because it's become more commonplace. So, you know, to speak to your, your question, I could speak for the professionals of you know, the security services in Great Britain. First rate. Um, I'm very respectful of them and nothing but positive experiences. But are they suffering from the same political leanings there as we are here? I would not be surprised. Do you think my 500 quid is safe? <laughs> I, I, Back to his 500 quid. That's the important question. Oh, I, I think everything uh, my, my, my head tells me is that it should be safe, but my heart uh, gives me some pause. Huh. If you were, if you were 
Vladimir Putin now surveying what's happening in the United States from coronavirus waves to uh, civil unrest, Black Lives Matter, overweening police uh, brutality, the dispatch of federal police agents and unmarked cars with no insignias to Portland, and then also Donald Trump's uh, waning political fortunes. What would you do to stir things up? What would you do in terms of disinformation and propaganda? Or would you do nothing and just let America sort of cannibalize itself as the old Onion article about Al-Qaeda sits back on the couch and watches America implode without in, any external intervention has it? Uh, but if you were if you were the Russians, what would you be doing to really kind of um, not only sow chaos in America, which we've already sown for ourselves, but also, you know, assuming that you would prefer Donald Trump to Joe Biden, which I think is a given, what would you be doing to help him at this point? The calculation is very much a double-edged sword strategically, isn't it? Because if you're Vladimir Putin, you want Trump to win another term. You don't know if he's going to. So your goal for Trump winning the second term is to continue the cast anyway. So how much more do you want to meddle and stir the pot so mm -hmm. that it continues to distract the United States, weaken the United States, pull it off target of things that will hurt Russia, but not so terribly damage Trump beyond the point that he could still win. So I think, uh, like all things in an intelligence campaign, it's a balanced calculus. And you try to find that sweet spot where you're doing just enough in the today to keep your aims, which is keeping the United States weak, distracted in some degree of chaos, but finding that sweet spot where you're still giving your preferred candidate, Trump, every opportunity to win the election. So the benefits just keep uh, occurring into the next term. Hmm. Yes. So are you an optimist or are you a pessimist, Doug? I am a spy, so I'm always hopeful. You know, I don't, I don't think you could be a spy without being hopeful things are going to work out because you wouldn't do half the things you wind up doing, which seem crazy to the normal person. So I'm hopeful. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the people of my country. And I believe that for the love of God, um, we're going to have to uh, get ourselves right uh, or or have consequences from which we might not so easily escape. So so I would make the same 500 quid bet, John. Um, like I say, I just I'd still just be a little nervous about it because, you know, the truth in intelligence and the truth in realities, you can never predict with certainty what's going to happen because it's all about people. And you can never figure out what any person's going to do at any particular in, you know, intersection of life and reality and circumstances. It's funny you say that because, you know, having been steeped in years of Le Carre and um, Buchan novels, I mean, The Hopeful Spy, first of all, it sounds like a great title for a Le Carre novel, but <laughs> I, I just see, you know, the, 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 the sort of overarching view is the opposite. I mean, you guys tend to be so kind of disgruntled and, angry and burnt out by the end of it just because of <laughs> just not just the misfortunes of the cosmos and, and dealing in human nature and psychology, but bureaucracy. I mean, there's that famous set piece from, uh, I mean, I know I'm talking fiction and fiction is not reality, although Le Carre seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, closer to the mark than say Ian Fleming. Um, but you know, that set, that famous set piece where Smiley is telling uh, Peter Gwillem about, you know, sort of the difficulties of, of doing the job when you're dealing with civil servants who keep coming in like a revolving door and 
new administrations with different degrees of political savvy and, you know, detente yesterday, containment tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. It seems harder to be a spy in a liberal democracy than it does in an authoritarian regime where, you know, the bad guy says, you know, go and, and be fruitful and multiply and cause as much destruction and chaos. And oh, by the way, your budget is unlimited. Um, you, you seem to be come out of it quite sanguine and, and sort of emotionally hygienic as compared to a lot of people, I, I think. Uh, well, well, well don't, I, I want to manage your expectations. Like, like any good spy, I'm, I'm extremely cynical and skeptical because you have to be. You can't believe anything at face value. You've got to test it and you can't just trust it. But at the same point, uh, my, my fundamental belief in people uh, is what makes me hopeful and what I've so much enjoyed about the world of espionage and dealing with people from all different climes and places and worlds where, you know, as long as you don't go in there with a sense of judgment and you focus mm-hmm. on empathy and, and understanding, you see them for what they are, but you can work with the better, uh, their better angels to get them where you want them to be. Mm. So the title of the thriller is The Optimistic Spy. <laughs> the Hopeful Spy. Hopeful Spy. I like that, yes. The, yes. As more opposed- Anglo-Saxon, John, and more Orwellian in a good way. Than <laughs> <laughs> there is also the, the alternative title, The Hopeless Spy, <laughs> which may, or may not be Donald Trump. We're, um, we're out of time. You've been listening to Doug London. 34 years in the CIA, in an absolutely fascinating interview. Thank you, Doug. And also Mike Weiss in New York and me for the time being in Italy. You've been listening to The Last Call with Two Busy Hacks. Thanks.